I'm so pleased to be joined again by Mark Gamble, Hospital Association of Southern California's Chief of Advocacy and Operations. Mark, thanks for joining today. My pleasure, Bill. It's great to be here and great to talk to you again. We were so happy to have you again as our keynote speaker at the AIA Healthcare Forum and wanted to further that conversation with kind of a deep dive into some of the topics that were covered there. Mark, first, the elephant in the room, pandemic. Talk a little bit about what impact that had and it continues to have on the hospital operations side. Yeah, thank you, Bill. And it was great to be back in person after a couple of years of being in COVID jail in the Zoom world. But I'll tell you, COVID has cast a long shadow, a long dark shadow, and there's a new dynamic now to the pandemic. And I just, for lack of a better term, call it the pandemic hangover. Mm. People are angry. We see a lot of divisiveness just in the world around us. And we've also seen a real uptick in the number of people experiencing a behavioral and mental health crisis. Another thing the pandemic put a spotlight on were this health and social inequities. Another thing that we've also now seen a consequence of the pandemic is the workforce. We have a real workforce shortage that's not just impacting hospitals, but healthcare in general, and that's really added to the dynamic. One other aspect or two other aspects that I'd like to just mention, Bill, are the financial hardship that we've seen hit our hospitals here in California, and also the fact that they're still seeing a number of patients. Many hospitals have a very high census of patients who delayed care during the pandemic, and that's another sad consequence of the pandemic. Yeah. Let's dive into a few of those, Mark, because those are all great topics. You mentioned about the high census. I think we all saw on a day-to-day basis and cringed a lot of times at the tracking of the number of hospital beds available during. It really shed the light, the need for some more flexibility in terms of how hospitals can expand when, God forbid, something like the pandemic happens again. It had to be something to watch definitely from your side and think about solutions for that. Yep. And as we talked about at the conference, it really gives the members of AIA and especially the health facilities folks an opportunity to look at how do we design hospitals going forward that are able to expand and expand exponentially. We saw at one point in LA County, there were 10,000 inpatients. And I believe, I have to check my numbers again, but the number of the capacity is 8,000. And it may be even lower than that. I'll confirm that. But we know we had more inpatients than we had beds. And so the system really had to surge. And it surged beyond anything. And usually in a disaster, a mass casualty event, there's mutual aid. So it's usually an earthquake and you can transfer patients to other counties, other facilities. But this, we saw patients coming up from El Centro. We had hospitals taking patients from other states. And we were looking at one point to transfer patients to other states that had capacity. Patients were being housed in cafeterias, in conference rooms, in gift shops. They were being converted in patient beds. And so How do you create it? So in a way, in these new hospitals that we have to think about going forward, is there a way to design patient space that's utilized for something else? I do know, obviously, there's CDPH, there's OSHPOD, there's state regulation, federal regulations also that need to be considered. But 
that's a policy discussion, but it's also something that maybe the designers and those of you in your business can help think about how we make more flexible space. Yeah. And even in an earthquake, California Hospital Association's talked about, do you really need the entire hospital to be standing after an earthquake? Or do you need those units that are going to be critical to caring for patients who are injured in an earthquake? Yeah. And Mark, we've seen a couple of things happen there. I know some of the facilities, as they're building new parking structures or are spending a little bit extra money in building those parking structures as flat parking structures. So that potentially could be at least undercover and potentially tended in as well, be additional kind of flex space for them in those type of environments specifically. Back to the beds and the utilization, one of the, I guess what we heard most about was ICU beds and intensive care use beds. And I think one of the other things that we're seeing some of the hospitals do Although HKI haven't quite caught up with that yet, we're seeing in California the building of a lot more universal rooms that can be used as flex to ICU beds. Now, currently today, Mark, they can't be licensed as ICU beds because there's only so many beds that can be licensed as that, but at least there's that flexibility for sure. Other things to come to mind with, with those kind of couple of comments? Yeah, I think the space on a hospital property is critical for a surge. In planning for disasters and mass casualty events, we've talked about, okay, where are the alternative sites? Where are those other sites that we can convert into a hospital? And early on in the pandemic, we saw a, a hospital that was closed down be reopened and turned into a surge hospital. We saw the LA Convention Center be turned into a surge. And we saw the USS Mercy docked in Long Beach or LA Harbor to accept patients. Very few patients went to those alternative sites because you don't have the entire infrastructure to support. So to your point, we really need to look at how we utilize that space on a hospital floor or in a hospital parking lot. So I'm really pleased to hear that it's moving in that direction because of the experiences we had. We saw hospitals set up tents in parking lots and they had to order tents from studios or from studio support companies or entertainment companies. And I think that's critical, as you mentioned. It's so funny, Mark. I remember 10 years ago or so, <clears throat> the advisory board coming out and saying, we won't need as many beds now. We'll, need, we'll continue to need less and less inpatient beds in the future, such that it was really going to ramp down. And I, I don't know. What your perspective is, certainly what I've seen is that's not the case. Pandemic is an anomaly example, but the aging baby boomers, the higher acuity patients that are being seen in those locations, even if we've decanted some of the services that used to be in the inpatient facility, it just doesn't seem like the bed need is going away. But it is flexing. So prior to the pandemic, census was way down in some facilities. So you had a lot of empty beds. So we can't build to the demand that you might have in a pandemic or a bad influenza season. So that's, again, going back to that flexibility in space. Um, and we used to think, as I said a few minutes ago, about alternative sites, which in my mind, those don't work and aren't the best thing for the patients or the delivery system. So how do you create that flex space throughout a hospital campus? Great point. Great comments for sure. Switching topics a little bit, you'd mentioned at the beginning about uh, mental and behavioral health. And I know that's the demand is tremendous. The demands out there, we've seen 
backlog of providers that, that we need to be able to provide those services. The mental health, them coming in through the emergency room has its challenges as well. What are your thoughts on that side of the that side well, of the yeah, and to put an exclamation mark on your last comment, I'll say a couple months ago, I, was on, I got a call from a hospital emergency department director saying, we have, and this is a non-psychiatric hospital, so they don't provide psychiatric services. They had 13 5150 holds. Those are people who are danger to themselves or others in their emergency department, all of them under the age of 25. And it's not a big quaternary tertiary trauma center kind of hospital. This was a small community hospital and they couldn't get those patients moved because there isn't the inpatient capacity for a number of reasons. So we really need to spend more time as a society looking at that and we've used these words over the years, that mental health parity, where we treat mental health as we do physical health and have the resources available throughout the spectrum of care. We've really had a decrease in capacity of the inpatient beds that are critical in the treatment of people with behavioral and mental health crisis. And so we have to figure out how to bring back a continuum that is both the physical and mental health And the consequence of the pandemic that it's had, not just on the youth, but on adults, is going to have a long tail. So that's part of that shadow I mentioned in the opening comments. Yeah, That dark shadow is really going to be the post-traumatic stress disorders and how so many people are coping and the lack of social interaction. To be at that conference a couple weeks ago, I had, I'm out of muscle memory of standing in front of a group that big in a room. It's kind of getting reacquainted to that process and... I was exhausted afterwards, where before invigorated, but I'm getting back into that social interaction piece. And so there are a lot of people that are grappling with it. And I think that's, again, going back to the societal issue and also the public policy. And as providers, we have to look at that. And then as in, again, in your field, trying to tie this back to how do you design buildings that Again, maybe flex for that mental health treatment area, but I don't know how you do that with all the ligature requirements that are out there, and those are important. Yeah, it is really tough because you have so many things that you have to to do to make them safe for mental health patients, and it it is encouraging when we look uh, across the United States and we're doing projects across the United States that you have large healthcare systems and catchment hospitals that are building behavioral health facilities, some of them quite large, some of them kind of the outpatient 16-bed facilities like they are doing in the state of Washington that are really putting, legislatively putting a lot of money into those facilities. And I think it sounds like several of the C-systems are also planning to build mental health facilities, which is not something that you would have normally seen, but I I think that's really an encouraging sign to, to help try to get that that bed count up. Yep. And the governor put a lot of money in his budget towards mental health. So I think we're going to catch up where we, hopefully where we need to be with that, with a care, integrated care system for the behavioral and mental health aspect, because we're Mm -hmm. certainly seeing an increased demand. And we've got to be able to get patients in crisis to a facility that's outfitted to care for them instead of having them languish in an emergency department that does not provide the services other than through an emergency room team. Um, And yeah, that's something we're working on with our colleagues and friends at the counties. Yeah. And you talk about 
not necessarily being the story you told about the community hospital with that many patients in there, 5150 patients, those workers in there, obviously there's a lot of things going on there. The workplace safety must be a, a concern as well, given the volume of those of the patients that are going in there that, that have those issues, right? Yep. Through the pandemic, and again, in that long shadow, we're seeing real significant increase in workplace violence. And that's people coming in who are angry at the hospital staff for telling them they have to wear a mask or for saying they can't have more than one visitor. The other things that have happened during the pandemic and now that are continuing on is a public safety piece. So we're seeing staff attacked in many in, in, in cases. And so we're talking to hospitals about, and this is something, again, for your group, how do you design hospitals? that are more considerate of workplace violence and reduce the flow and also provide more safety aspects in the design. And, and, and I'm not sure how we do that, but I think we've looked at, we, and we've actually had conversations with hospital CEOs. If I go way back in my career, whenever we mentioned metal detectors, that was, oh no, I'd never put a metal detector in here. Yeah. But now it's becoming more common to hear hospital CEOs, yeah, we're installing metal detectors. And I think us as a society, are also getting more accustomed to that because we see and hear uh, through the 24-7 social media the increases in violence. And I think so. It's to see a metal detector, I used to, ooh, but now it's safety. It's not a catch-all, but it is, it's that safety piece. So for your folks, looking at that safety component, I think is big. And we see it in the schools, right? Metal detectors in the schools are commonplace now. You bring up a really good point, especially on large sprawling campuses to try to maintain that safety aspect and have safety stations. Just my daughter's in college now. And one of the things that she looked at so much and was so important to her when we were looking at different colleges was what is their emergency call system and how far away do they have to go for that? And of course, on the large sprawling campuses, you're seeing a lot of those, a lot of money being spent on those type of systems right now. Yeah. Exactly to your point. And that's a great point because my son just went to college and one of the things of every campus we toured, they would point out their blue pillars and say, one would say, you know what, you can stand at a blue pillar and you're going to see another one, which is the emergency call boxes for those of you who haven't been on a college campus lately. And I also think you talk about the large sprawling campuses, um, airports are large sprawling campuses and they limit the the entrances and exits. We certainly don't want to get to the point of having a TSA-like screening service at every hospital, but you, we do have to look at key cards. And I know many hospitals are already going that route just to make sure we're the right people are getting through the right doors and not leaving through the wrong doors. Yeah. So you mentioned the workplace violence, the impacts of angry people on the pandemic that has to be having some effect on the overall workforce as well. The numbers, that's probably, we can build as many hospitals as we want, but we also need to be able to staff them, right, Mark? Right. (laughs) So that's a big issue right now is staffing. And again, it's that pandemic hangover. We saw a number of staff who were close to the retirement age or just young pursue a different career or the older ones closer to retirement retire. And we knew it was coming because if I go back to my old slide decks from earlier conferences, I'm sure I talked about workforce and the looming shortage. The pandemic brought that shortage to us and dumped it on our doorstep here. So now we have it. 
And one of the issues that we've been grappling with our friends in the emergency medical services arena is those that the EMS agencies that oversee ambulances, they're having a shortfall. They see a shortfall in EMTs and we have a shortfall in hospital staff. So what it's done is it creates a backlog in the emergency department of ambulances backing up because the hospitals can't get them off the gurney and into the inpatient setting because they don't have enough staff to open some beds. And then on the backside, the skilled nursing facilities have those same challenges. And the ambulance companies that do interfacility transfers aren't available. So it's a push-pull with our friends in the EMS side. And that's something that I think we all have to grapple with. And how do we increase the pipeline to get the youth and looking at healthcare? And so we've got a number of initiatives, as other organizations do, trying to increase that pipeline. So for those of you with kids age of Bill, I encourage them to go into healthcare. I think my son's seen enough of it that he's going the other direction through my experience, but yeah, I think it's important. And I do know a number of people whose kids are gravitating towards the medical industry, health industry, which is great. Yeah. The idea of nurses, I think has been around for a long time, but hearing the graduates for psychology degrees, which we're not always able to find jobs now, are in such demand because of the behavioral health and mental health issues that we're seeing right now. Yeah. I have friends with kids who are in crisis and they can't find a psychiatrist. So that just puts the exclamation mark on our earlier discussion about the needs here. Absolutely. I think, Mark, one of the other observations that I've had in some of the policies that have had to be in place because of the pandemic is that really some of those policies are wrapped into politics and those are affecting not only the hospital workers, but the hospitals and healthcare systems themselves. Yeah. And I would say it's the other way around, Bill. It's politics wrapped around the policy and it's strangling the policy that it used to be. Politics has always driven policy, but now it's really being driven at least from my perspective, by politics. And we've seen the local landscape and also the landscape in California become much, much more progressive. And um, even some very progressive friends of mine are saying, wow, they're being outflanked on the left. I've always said it's important to have a balance, and we are certainly out of balance both at the federal and state, and now more so at the, in, in, including now at the local level, we got to get the balance back. And so I think those of us on the moderate side of both spectrums have to figure out how to get policy back front and center, because we have seen some groups that have become very powerful, both again at the state and federal level and both sides of the aisle that really change the dynamics of policy making, And that's put a challenge for us in various industries and for those of us in healthcare, seismic is one of those topics that we've struggled over the past couple of years to get something through Sacramento on seismic relief because of the politics up there. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that. Obviously, some systems have spent millions, billions of dollars to update their hospitals all the way through the SPC-5 and everything, and some see that as a larger financial burden than even just the SPC-1 steel upgrades because of the dollars associated with that and, frankly, having to go into those facilities and shut down certain areas to make those things happen. I can certainly see both sides of that argument where you want them safe, you don't want anything falling on them when there's, a, when there's a, an event. 
on the other hand, for the impact to operations and then impact financially to some of those facilities just seems to make it untenable from a dollars and cents standpoint. And so the balance is, and this is also around our board table and within our membership, which is why it's interesting to work for a hospital association that represents all types of hospitals, because you've got, as you described, you've got the whole spectrum here. You've got hospitals that are well beyond the required mints for the 30 or 2030 deadline. And then you've got others that really, they're on the precipice here. What do we do if we don't get some more time? And so within that, though, the conversation is for those that haven't gotten to the point where they're 2030 compliant, what does compliance have to look like? And that's part of the discussion CHA is having up in Sacramento. And I mentioned it earlier. Do we need, do we really need the entire structure to be standing? You want the entire structure stranding, but we do, do we need to be at, to that point of the seismic requirements for 2030? And is there a way that we look at making sure that we have services available that are going to be critical in the time or in response to an earthquake yeah. without, because if you, yeah, just, it's that weighing of, we talked about capacity earlier. If there's not that flexibility and we don't get some relief, then we're going to lose even more capacity. And so, so that's part of that dynamic bill where CHA and our colleagues up in Sacramento, have a, a, the, the, those discussions will take place up there. We'll support them. You bring up a great, I don't know if it's a disparity or, or definitely a difference between the urban healthcare facility and the rural healthcare facility. And the fact that a number one, a number of those hospital districts can't, don't, can't afford it, can't even get the public to approve bonds to be able to do those improvements anyway. And it really puts the, that rural healthcare facilities in a very tenuous situation. Are they going to get closed down? Is nobody going to be able to have health care there? What, what does that look like at January 1st? Yeah. And it's also the, I'm just making this up, it's the urban rural. Um, so it's the urban hospitals that are in areas that lack the capacity and because they are underfunded. And so this goes back to one of the things I mentioned at the conference is the Social and health disparities have, were highlighted, but something that's really highlight, been highlighted in my mind through this is the health disparity that's been created by the underfunding of Medi-Cal. And mm -hmm. we've been talking about the shortfall in Medi-Cal reimbursement for years, and it's only now that connected the dots that, hey, that underfunding has led to a lack of services and health disparities in underserved communities in the urban areas. And so you really have urban hospitals that are really important for the Medi-Cal population that are also in that kind of, what do we do around site? Because all the only source really is Medi-Cal and that's not enough to create the capital to that you need for that kind of seismic compliance. So it's really, now how do we look at that Medi-Cal from a different lens? It's not about woeys me as a hospital, it's woeys us for not being able to provide the services to attract the doctors that we need in our communities um, because the doctors aren't paid and to the point where they can go out and get commercial contracts and uh, make a living. It's really hard to make a living on the Medi-Cal re reimbursement rates. We've all heard the plumber analogy, but there's a lot of analogies now, I think, that you see some of these reimbursement rates that are w well under what they are to attract the staff. Yeah, sure. The disparity, obviously, with the ESG movement is a huge 
issue that gets a lot of attention. Certainly hopeful that pointing out that will help to solve some of that disparity for sure. That's it's a, something that's too bad to hear about. Yeah. And I'm encouraged. It's a lot like the quality and safety discussion that took place 25 years ago, 20 years ago, where it was, we used to leave that up to the physicians. Quality and safety was their issue. But then the hospital said, you know what? No, it's us. It's our community's issue. It's for all of us. And so we jumped in as an association and we're doing the same thing now. An organization that we started just prior to the pandemic called Communities Lifting Communities. And it's an organization that brings hospitals to look at those health disparities, social inequities, and how do we work with our colleagues in public health and the communities the hospitals serve to improve the life aspect of those residents. That's fantastic. And it's always a pleasure to talk with you. I learn something new every time we talk and so appreciate your time and look forward to having you continue to be our keynote speaker into the future. So thanks again for your time and appreciate your insights that you bring. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you very much. It's always great talking to you and I will come back anytime asked. 